0: Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex is more excited than I am today. Alex, who have we got on? Boom, we've got Phil Weir today, historian specializing in the Royal Navy in the first half of the 20th century. So in his PhD, he examined uh British naval aviation between the wars, and he's written for oh, everyone, Navy Records Society, History Today, Time. Uh, he's been on radio and television, he's done Who Do You Think You Are? Um And he's here today to tell us why the Royal Navy deserves all the credit for the Battle of Britain, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) I thought I'd phrase it like that just because your historian head would explode.
1: Yeah. Alina's
0: thrilled to have you. I'm so, look, okay, I'm really excited to have Phil because Phil is frigging awesome. He's lovely. He's sweet. He's a diamond. Oh, Oh my God, it's boat stuff. <laughs> stuff. She said she's going to t- she's going to pay you back by calling you nah. Dr. Phil for the whole of this interview. Thank nah. you, Dr. Phil.
1: <laughs> anyway, well, you later.
0: <clears throat> <laughs> 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 Let's get to the point, uh Phil. Frame the Battle of Britain for us. Where does it sit in the grander scheme of things by the time it happens in 1940?
1: Well, I mean, inevitably, um, by the time you get to the, the middle of 1940, the Second World War is starting to, to get really pretty big. Um, you've got Italy declaring war in uh, June 10th. So you've got a complete new theatre of operations opening up in the Mediterranean. And you know, there's, there's an awful lot going on at that point, even while you're, you've got the withdrawals from France and Norway going on throughout May and June. Um, you've got the the opening of uh, of the war in uh, in the Mediterranean, and yeah, you know, there's just a hell of a lot going on at the same time as um, what we think of the Battle of Britain. So yeah, it's it's extremely sort of big and complicated, and the the war at that point is not just about what's going on in the skies over. Um, southern England and the Channel uh, in, in those few uh, few months of the summer.
0: So now the Battle of Britain starts on the 10th of July, officially, but tell us about what happened in terms of the war at sea the week before.
1: Well, the war uh, the week before the Battle of Britain formally starts, um, and it's a fairly arbitrary date anyway, but um, it's in many respects one of the biggest weeks in naval Warfare of the, the entire war. Uh, I mean, you end up starting out on uh, give or take around the third of July with the and people kind of forget this because it's a little bit on the controversial side. The the basically wiping out and capturing of most of the French Navy um, in the course of a single day in operations Grasp and Catapult, the massive. Effort by the Royal Navy to to capture, um, and literally they, they send sailors aboard um, the, the ships that are in British ports, um, you know, armed with guns, saying, "Hi, we're taking your ship." Um, they point battleship guns at, uh, at another French squadron in uh, in Alexandria, uh, and sort of suggestive, you know, "Please don't go anywhere and start demilitarizing." Uh, And of course, you know, rather fatally, uh, there is the the big clash at uh, uh, Merz or Kabir, where one of the most significant French naval squadrons is sunk. Um, But I mean, you know, pretty much after, not terribly far after that, the uh, the first happy time of the Battle of the Atlantic really starts opening. You get the first U-boats arriving in French bases. I mean, it, it really is... France basically you know, surrenders on the 22nd of June, and by the 5th of July, I think it is, the first of the U-boats are starting to arrive at Lorient, um, led by uh, the U-30, of uh, commanded by Fritz Julius Lemp, who uh, famously sank the liner Athenia on the first day. Um, and the, the, I mean, this is huge, this sort of uh, brings the U-boats out past the uh, the, the defences of the channel and um, the uh, Iceland Faroes Gap Denmark Strait and so forth that the Britain largely controls and gives them free access to the Atlantic and allows them to stay out in the Atlantic for a lot longer as well. So they really start sinking um, sinking ships in the Atlantic at that point. And you know, shortly after that, in August, uh, they're, they're joined by another 26 Italian submarines at Bordeaux. Um, <clears throat> and then of course, literally the day before um, the Battle of the Battle of Britain is considered to start. you get one of the biggest naval battles of the war, uh, the Battle of Calabria in the Mediterranean, where uh, some of the really um, the few times that uh, um, the Royal Navy's Mediterranean fleet and the Italian fleet. You know, actually, meet in full-scale battle. You've got you know, three battleships on the uh, on the British side, two on the the Italian side. It's inconclusive, but I mean, you know, in scale, it's you know, huge. Um, this is the the first really big um, naval battle since you know, Jutland, I think. Really. Um,
0: so, why th- isn't that classed as part of the Battle of Britain?
1: Well. <laughs> inevitably um and this is kind of one of the really key things with it um it's it's about what you define as, as the battle of britain and you know obviously you know, people have got their their sort of concepts of what the battle of britain is uh, and yeah everybody's seen the, the film and uh, you know, lots of uh, top-notch chaps with top-notch handlebar moustaches. um yeah, saying uh, spring chicken to shite hawk in one easy lesson <laughs> and yeah we can, we can all quote lines and it's great fun um <laughs> i do it regularly <laughs> but um yeah there is this sort of narrow concentration um on the uh, on the, the events in the uh, um in the air and around southeast england and there's there's a good reason for that I think um and it's because it's nicely geographically bound it's got you know a clear um, clear kind of enemy the the Luftwaffe against a you know, clear um, good guy the um fighter command of the r a f you know in you know, this this nice sort of Clearly defined space for you know, air superiority over over southern England that, that is, you know, the the home country. So, to a large extent, stuff that's related to defence of the empire, like um, Calabria and so forth, and you know you get the the Italian invasion of uh, of Somaliland um, you know, a few days before Adla were the first big day of the, the Battle of Britain, and you get the uh, the um invasion of egypt itself uh, just a few days before the battle of britain uh, what's known as battle of britain day itself in in september all this stuff is sort of classed as imperial defense and probably not desperately unreasonably but we do seem to forget that sort of stuff and it's um it is kind of problematic because um you know britain fights the war as an empire um you know you you can't really get away from that fact um so you you do kind of need to look more at that
0: so i think we can agree that definitions aside the point of this period is for hitler to defeat britain what planning had they done before the war
1: well that's a that's a fun question because i mean in terms of um for example invading britain pretty much nothing is the short answer. They, they really haven't prepared for, for anything like that. The Navy, on the other hand, has done a fair bit of, uh, of looking at basically Britain is um, the German Navy's key enemy. Um, that's who they particularly plan against. And key to it all, of course, is uh, famously um, Admiral Dönitz and his U-boats and uh, trying to, to sink as much British commerce as uh, as possible and basically um, blockade Britain into um, into quitting, um, but of course you know they don't really expect what happens in the Battle of France. They don't expect France to fall the way they they you know, the way it does. Nobody really does. They don't expect to be able to uh, to be within anything that resembles an invasion reach of, uh, of Britain. So really um the prospect of an invasion is really only sort of raised i think it's mid-may um strangely enough by the navy um and it's the the relationship of the navy to invading britain is a bit weird um yeah admiral raider i think as i say is, is the one that uh i think initially proposes it but um really they are looking at a plan where uh essentially the army's not really trained for this um they're, they're not trained in amphibious operations they're not equipped for it um the navy's not got the shipping for it the navy's certainly not big enough to to protect it um which really leaves you with the, the Luftwaffe, which similarly isn't really trained in sinking ships, it's not really trained in strategic bombing. Um, which might be your other option if you were, were the sort of uh, bomber baron uh, mindset, you just you know, try and bomb Britain's cities until they um you know burn to the ground and uh, um, and, the, and the country capitulates, but, um, you know, the fluff is not set up for that. It is predominantly there as a, as a support system for the army. So what do you do? Um, well, so the, the, the uh, German Navy sort of proposes, a, an invasion and, um, key to that is, well, you know, how do we get rid of the, the Royal Navy and the RAF well, Up steps Goering, um, up steps the Luftwaffe and says, right, we all smash the RAF and uh, gain air superiority over over southern England and uh, and the the Navy can just bring across the barges quite happily and we'll see off the the Royal Navy as well. Um, And uh, it seems largely at that point that the the German Navy, the Kriegsmarine, basically just says, well, thanks, good luck with that. (laughs) And uh, and continues off really with its uh its own campaign in the Atlantic. So yeah, it's it's really down to uh um at this point, in terms of the, the invasion plan, um Operation Sea Lions, it's famously called, it's down to um the Luftwaffe to be the service that actually goes ahead and prepares the ground and gets everything ready and mostly defeats Britain. So uh, the army's got a relatively uh, reasonable time of it because they're they're otherwise not equipped for a a full-on D-Day style landing. They're just not.
0: 10th of July, it officially starts. What is the Royal Navy's direct contribution to the Battle of Britain?
1: Well, um, most immediately, you've got two fighter squadrons, um, 804 and 808 uh, Naval Air Squadrons based at uh, Hanston and Wick in Scotland. Uh, they're flying the very latest in uh, naval fighters. The 808 is, uh, has just equipped itself with the, the new Ferry former, um, which is a two-seater aircraft, But powered by the same Merlin engine as the the Spitfires and Hurricanes, and um, it's got the uh, the same um, eight Browning machine guns in the wings, although a lot more ammunition to them. And you've got uh, possibly some chance of a former of getting somewhere near uh, Tom Hardy's famous uh, uh, massive Russian bullets that you get in the Dunkirk film. (laughs) Um, You've also got, as say, 804 Naval Air Squadron, um, which is uh, re-equipping with the, the first US fighter um, that's uh, that's being bought by Britain. Well, actually, technically speaking, the uh, these have been bought by France before France fell, but the uh, the purchase was uh, immediately transferred to Britain. <clears throat> and uh, and these are a fun little aircraft. Um, that, uh, that Britain calls the Grumman Martlet. first of them arrives on July the 27th, and they, they slowly re-equip out until sort of mid-September. Um, and the martlets, if you really wanted to, uh, to, to stir up a little trouble, it's you know, quite good fun. You could sit there and suggest, um, in some respects, the, the Martlet is possibly the best fighter um, in service during the battle, uh, because it's, it's got the same sort of performance as a hurricane. Same sort of speed, same sort of maneuverability, but um, because it's American, it comes with a big 50 caliber machine guns and can cause an awful lot more damage. So it's got a hell of a lot more firepower. And because it's carrier aircraft, it's got an awful lot more range as well. So I mean, if you ever wanted to, uh, to start a minor fight, you, you could sort of start suggesting that, uh, that the Royal Navy actually has the best fighter in the, in the battle. But on the other hand, you'd have to accept the fact that really they're only fully sort of up and uh, up and running on it by the end of September, um, which is really the end of the battle. Um, and of course, they're stuck up in Scotland. Their main duty um, is protecting the, the great fleet base at Scapa Flow, um, and therefore they don't really sort of meet up with uh, any uh, enemy aircraft. Um, Indeed, I think the first time a a martlet shoots down a a German aircraft is Christmas Day 1940. That's um, it's sort of that removed from the action, but they they are there, they are counted as being um, part of the um, part of fighter command. So they were technically acting under fighter command um, because of the the, the integrated nature of, uh, of Britain's air defense at the time. Uh, they're effectively operating under Fighter Command's orders, and they are obviously, by being there, releasing um, two RAF squadrons for, for duty elsewhere, um, which obviously has considerable use. Beyond that, uh, you've got 23 uh, other fighter pilots spread throughout squadrons in the uh, in RAF Fighter Command. Um, the famous legless ace, Douglas Bader, uh, who's commanding 242 squadron in the battle, uh, has uh, two of them. One of them, um, Sub-Lieutenant Richard Dickey Cork, uh, is actually his, uh, you know, Bader's wingman. Um, terrific fighter pilot that ends the war, well, when I say ends the war, ends his life. Sadly, he uh, he was killed in an accident in Tremconnelly in 1944, but by the time of his death, he is um, one of the, the top aces in the Royal Navy uh, in the war. And, um, some Something like 16 uh, aircraft destroyed at that point. And obviously becomes an ace during the Battle of Britain for the first time and then actually um, manages, I think, five kills in a day, uh, protecting the, the Malta convoy, uh, the famous pedestal convoy in, uh, in 1942. So... Yeah, you know, hell of a pilot. Um, and you know, these guys obviously you know, not all of them are quite as successful as uh, as Dicky Cork, but yeah, uh, you know, they they do step in, contribute, and uh, and and shoot down aircraft. And yeah, you know, some of them are lost. I think there's about half a dozen of them um, are lost during the battle. But they they integrate into their their squadrons and, uh, and sort of you know, still wearing their naval uniforms and gently. Uh, Getting ribbed by their RAF colleagues and you know, politely ribbing them back. Uh, always think one, polite. Oh, always. <laughs> always. <laughs> I think, think one of them painted um, the, uh, the flag signal uh, Nelson's famous famous flag signal. England expects uh, every man to do his duty on uh, on the um, uh, on the fuselage of his of his hurricane <laughs> Nice touch for him. Um, but yes, uh, there was a, obviously a, a little gentle ribbing going on uh, here and there. Um, and it's not just in the air as well. You've uh, remarkably enough got uh, um, guys on the ground um, because the, the Royal Navy in the interwar period sets up a an organization called the uh, the Mobile Naval Base Defense Organization. It's basically a, um, a kind of a naval base in a box sort of thing that uh, you've got... Um, Assorted um, you know, bits and pieces to set up a a, a forward naval base um, in a in a port or island um, that's far from home kind of thing um, part of which of course is uh, a group of anti-aircraft guns manned by royal marines and of course you know mid of uh, middle of the Battle of Britain what do they do well they they unpack these guys and uh, um, set up uh, a bunch of them around. I think it's Dover and um, uh, Folkestone, and I believe the uh, the, the first MNBDO um, anti aircraft uh, unit is, I think, the highest scoring anti aircraft unit um, actually in the Battle of Britain. So you know there there is a contribution. It's got to be said um, to squadrons um largely out of the way of the battle and uh, and you know, 23 other pilots plus uh, plus some anti aircraft guns this isn't decisive in the battle when um we're not talking the uh, the, the absolute uh, yeah. these guys win the battle of britain i mean there's, there's others in greater numbers who shoot down you know greater numbers of uh, uh, of luftwaffe aircraft Alina, poles, <laughs> yay! Yeah, we, we we had to had to bring in the Battle of Britain poles just for Alina, I think,
0: to wake her up if nothing else. Well,
1: yeah, just uh, <laughs>
0: thanks for that, thanks,
1: Alina. Okay, <laughs> I'm,
0: I'm still here. I'm still awake. Don't worry, we're all good.
1: Of course. Um, so yeah, there are others that uh, that you can you say were well, there in greater numbers, contribute more, and of course, you know. Fighter command itself um, with its its assorted um setups, the radar and the control systems and uh the ground crews and all the rest of it that that go into uh to keeping um the the fighters in the air. Um so yeah, let's just say the Royal Navy doesn't win the the direct confrontation in the air. Uh, that's I think I think we can clearly say that, that um, but you know, there are kind of going back to the the key point at the the opening. Um, there is more to it than that, because of course this isn't. In technically, this isn't just a fight for for air superiority. It's you what's know, going to happen about um, any sort of invasion that might be attempted by the uh, by the Germans.
0: I have to ask, though, in the event that the air, the air fighting fails and Operation Sea Line occurs, what is the Royal Navy plan for repelling an invasion?
1: Um, well, long story short is sink it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sounds pretty good to me.
1: Which is, you know, it's a pretty solid plan, let's be honest here. Um, basically, the, the Royal Navy masses a huge... Falls um, in order to, to try and prevent an invasion um, basically by Battle of Britain day on the on the fifteenth of September um, directly under the command of, uh, sort of commander in chief nor based at uh, Chatham and uh, commander in chief uh, Portsmouth uh, obviously at portsmouth um, and you know, bases Naval base is basically between the Humber and Portsmouth, really. You've got, I think it's six cruisers, 70 destroyers, and I think it's another 700 small patrol craft, um, and little armed yachts, motor torpedo boats, and so on and so forth, uh, on immediate standby, 200 of which are, are sort of constantly at sea um, throughout the period, just sort of keeping a watch on uh, on prospective invasion routes um, and just sort of staying out of port so um, you know, they they're at less risk of uh, being bombed um, so you've got this huge force there um the royal marines artillery again um, are sat at dover and uh Marvelously, they they've got two massive fourteen-inch battleship guns, uh, nicknamed Winnie and Pooh, that, uh, that that's yeah. so
0: British. I love it.
1: <laughs> it's brilliant, isn't it? I love it. Um, and they they can do actually hit targets uh, the other side of Calais. And if you ever want to see one of these fourteen-inch guns, though, it's not one of the uh, not one of the ones I think used. Um, for the the Dover emplacements, but uh, um, at Fort Nelson, the uh, the um, artillery collection there, they've actually got a fourteen inch gun of, of that type. They are absolutely huge, uh, you know, firing massive fifteen hundred pound battleship shells. Um, that's not going to be fun for for anybody uh, trying to cross the channel at that point. Um, but beyond those sort of direct um, yeah, anti-invasion forces backing those up, um, the battleship HMS Revenge and cruiser HMS Emerald arrive actually pretty much on the 15th uh, at Plymouth, uh, fresh from delivering Britain's gold supply to Canada, incidentally, um, in a fundamental operation called Operation Fish. Um, and they they are basically sort of there as the, the big heavy backup in the channel. Um, then really key to it all is the home fleet under Admiral of the Fleet Sir Charles Forbes, um, which is you know, the, the key British fleet at, uh, in home waters. Um, and that's comprised of the battleships HMS Nelson, HMS Rodney, Battlecruiser Hood, um <clears throat> the uh battle cruiser repulse aircraft carrier HMS Furious and plus attendant cruisers, destroyers, and uh, this is a lot of, of heavy metal. Um Forbes himself again around about the sort of um thirteenth, fifteenth uh of September moves down from Scapa Flow to Recife to be nearer any invasion site. Uh he leaves behind uh, repulse and furious to guard against uh, any attempts by German heavy cruisers to, to break out um, into the Atlantic. They're also there to do, and, they, and this is one of the sort of contentious bits with the, the Battle of Britain defense strategy in the Royal Navy. Um, because Forbes wants, thinks a lot of this is overkill, um, and he's, he's probably right. He, he wants more concentrated backup at Scapa Flow so he can start making offensive moves against the coast of Norway and various other bits. In fact, when he, when he arrives at, uh, uh, at the site, he's fresh back from a, running a carrier strike with HMS Furious um, out to the Norwegian coast. And this sort of thing, uh, Furious and Repulse, um, continue to do uh, a couple of times, again during the battle, um, just to, uh, to to keep you know, German shipping on its toes um, off the Norwegian coast, and then keep uh, keeping Germans off balance a bit. So yeah, the the uh, the assembly of of British naval firepower is absolutely enormous at this point. And I you know, say so we have to bear in mind that. Um, the german navy is not set up for a, a major amphibious operation they just they don't have um the landing craft they don't have the, the specialized um ships to transport landing craft you know, none of this the, the sort of stuff you see on d day is just not there um and then of course there's the, the comparison with the german navy itself which has taken a fairly savage beating um off norway
0: So what sort of costs are we looking at in terms of ships and casualties for the Royal Navy during the Battle of Britain? Well,
1: here's the fun bit. Um, I I mentioned earlier um, that, of course, you know, um, the Luftwaffe is charged with um, taking on the RAF and the Royal Navy to to clear the way for any invasion. Now, the Luftwaffe is not actually, as I mentioned, terribly good at sinking ships. They've not really got any serious armor-piercing bombs at this point that can do major damage to to armored battleships. They've not really got any aerial torpedoes to um, sink large ships. Their accuracy in terms of uh, of bombing um, Royal Navy ships off of uh, Norway and then Dunkirk ain't actually that great. Um, I don't think they actually managed to sink a you know, single one off Dunkirk. Certainly they, they managed one or two off of Norway that are moving, but pretty much everything that's any destroyer that sunk off Dunkirk is, is basically sort of sat stationary off the beaches um, or stationary in the, in the harbour at Dunkirk itself. Um, as, as a fun example, um, I always like to use the um, the Luftwaffe takes, I think it's 10 hours trying to sink the cruiser HMS Suffolk off Norway um, in April, I think it is. And they managed to sort of split the hull a bit with a, a near miss, and she suffers some flooding, and you can see a spectac- fairly spectacular. Picture of her um, with a, her stern very low in the water after she gets back to Scapa Flow, but in ten hours they can't hit her once. Now a fully trained um, in anti-shipping um, naval air force the Japanese, two years down the line, um, off uh, um, off Ceylon in nineteen forty-two, catch two cruisers of the same class and take. 10 minutes to sink both of them. Um, <laughs> this is a fun comparison as to, to what Luftwaffe is actually like in, um, in 1940 in terms of sinking ships. So they're not really very good at it. And just for fun games, I've, I've gone through um, a list of the destroyers that are lost in, in home waters during the Battle of Britain. And basically, um, it's what, one, two, three, four, it's effectively seven um, destroyers. One of them's lost in a collision. Um, two of them are lost on a mine laying mission while trying to, to lay mines, you know, lay British mines off of Texel in the Netherlands. Um, so, but they run into a German minefield themselves. Um, one of them, I think, gets uh, mined on in the Thames Estuary, approaching home, port. And really, it's only therefore four, I think it is, that, uh, that are actually sunk in any level of bombing. Um, HMS Brazen escorting a convoy off Dover Strait. HMS Wren uh, escorting minesweepers off Suffolk. Um, HMS Delight uh, just left Portland Harbour to, to move closer to, uh, to the invasion area. Um, and the only one that they actually sink while in harbour, strangely enough, is, is HMS Codrington um, when they bombed over harbour uh, on the 27th. And literally pretty much all of those are lost uh, to bombing, are lost in the last week of July. They see, they don't sink anything, any other destroyers um, during the Battle of Britain. I mean, it's given you've got 70 of the blasted things <laughs> in ports, so as I say, from the Humber to Portsmouth...
0: Not a good ratio, is it?
1: They're, they're almost not trying.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's like, really? Is that all you've got?
1: You know, um, this is... I mean, obviously... Ports fairly well protected. They've got, um, I mean, Dover, as I say, has got the Marines and their anti-aircraft guns and so forth around. So it's not an easy target by any stretch of the imagination, but there is literally damn all effort put into to sinking um, the British fleet before the invasion. And, and you kind of start wondering really how serious this is. And, you know, coming back to the Navy, of course, interestingly having suggested it what are they doing I, you know are they pulling their u-boats out of the, uh, um out of the out of the atlantic to uh to set traps for these destroyers that are you know bear in mind these these destroyers are sort of going in and out of port and so forth nope not a chance uh when there's there is no loss of a, of a destroyer to to a u-boat in, the, <laughs> in this period certainly not around the uh uh, around the British Isles, it's they're almost not trying against the Royal Navy, um, and I mean, you know, you can sit and read the you know, guys like James Holland and uh, Stephen Bungay and so forth on on the losses um, the RAF suffer in the Battle of Britain, and the the attempt to to take out Fighter Command, um, which we broadly know, of course, doesn't really succeed. But in terms of the effort to take out the Royal Navy, it's, it's pretty much non-existent. It isn't there, and if you know what, it, what there is, you know, is desperately unsuccessful. I've got to
0: ask as well. Like conversely, so it's like they haven't got a decent plan. They don't make a decent fist of trying to get rid of the Navy. And conversely, the Royal Navy takes the fight to them because when you're talking about anti-invasion and repelling, they're actually going into French. Ports and hitting them there, aren't they? yep
1: yeah, they they very much are um, I mean, it's one of the one of the great fun ones about the Battle of Britain and um, you know, it's all bound up in the uh, the whole sort of uh, service rivalries and so forth and uh, the reason all this gets so contentious is that it turns into a bit of a slag fest of uh, you know, Navy supporters versus raf supporters saying no oh, your bunch were useless in the battle of britain no oh, your bunch were, were nowhere to be seen off dunkirk and all this sort of thing um and you know the the various comments that oh you know the, the Luftwaffe would have sunk the navy if uh if they put any battleships into the, the channel well for him the royal navy actually does put <laughs> a battleship into the channel um among various other ships um and they, they run a, a program of bombardments against um, the channel ports, the, the French channel ports, where the Germans are a- assembling um, the sort of Rhine barges and so forth. They're desperately converting into to becoming this knock together invasion fleet that they somehow hope will, will do the job. And I mean, you know, um, a few examples the 8th of September the cruiser HMS Aurora um, 6 inch gun cruiser goes and um, batters the, uh, the vessels in Boulogne um, 30th, 30th of September the, the monitor um, you have small small whole ship with just a massive 15 inch gun turret sat on it um, literally just a, a gun ship um, starts firing on Calais um, and yeah, you yeah, <laughs> know, very much in the channel, boys and girls. Uh, and then in October, the you know, revenge I mentioned earlier, um, along with a, a group of destroyers goes in and uh, and batters Cherbourg, um, and all the uh, the barges in there in concert with uh, with RAF Bomber Command. So, you know, um, the navy is actually you know, pretty active and taking the offensive as i say as you say in uh, uh in the channel itself and and elsewhere
0: can i ask you uh what in terms of the actual strength that they put out the german navy is it decent
1: um no <laughs> i mean the german navy taken... i
0: see what you're saying about like you have to start questioning were you ever really that serious about yeah. invading britain
1: oh, oh god yeah i mean it's it's an interesting one i mean uh, German naval strength it takes a hell of a kicking off Norway. Um, I mean, the, Norway is the one that they they managed to, to kind of get away with. Um, Admiral Raider, the uh, the head of the German Navy, said, you know, we managed it against all the possible tenets of, of naval warfare. Um, <laughs> You know, this was against all the rules. I mean, they do stuff like load troops onto, onto warship decks and so forth and, and sail them into Norwegian ports. It's the one sort of big amphibious operation, but it costs them. Dear God, does it cost them it? I mean, it, mm-hmm. it costs them 50% of their destroyer uh, strength. The, the, the entire destroyer strength of the German Navy is, is, is 20. And by the end of the Norway campaign, it's down to 10. Um, wow three cruisers, and the two battleships, Scharnhorst and Nisenau, that they've got, um, basically both of them get torpedoed, one of them sinking the carrier HMS Glorious. Uh, one of the destroyers puts a torpedo in Sharnhorst, Um, And trying to get back, um, her sister ship, Nisenau, gets torpedoed by the submarine HMS Clyde, uh, which down near blows the bow off. Um, you, you should see pictures of it. It's, it's spectacular. The whole is just... You're going to have
0: to send me those. I want to see.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, and neither of them sail again that year. Neither of them are capable of sailing until 1941. So throughout this, this entire period, Germany's got two heavy cruisers, the Admiral Shearer and the Admiral Hepper. Um, three light cruisers that also double up as mine layers, ten destroyers I mean if you're trying to protect an invasion fleet fleet against the Royal Navy I mean Admiral Drax at the North has got um, at Chatham has got more under his command than the entire German Navy before Charles Forbes ever gets anywhere near with the home fleet. I mean it's (laughs) It's, it's one of those where you kind of got to be joking um the the key plan incidentally for the the big german surface ships uh Scheer and Hepper, is not for them to protect the invasion um because that's just going to be suicide it's for them to try and make a breakout into the atlantic to try and get at british shipping um and try to distract the home fleet that way um, but of course, uh, as I think I mentioned they, uh, Forbes left uh repulse and furious up there just to, to deal with any uh, any such eventuality and frankly you know, repulse was cheerfully capable of dealing with uh, with the pair of them without really too much hassle um, a battle cruiser against a heavy cruiser is just not even close to being funny at that point, so yeah the the German navy is in not a terribly good position, and as i say they 're not putting any great level of effort into to whittling down um, their their prospective royal navy opponents um, There's a there was a fun German assessment in uh, <clears throat> back in forty four um, where they, you know, the German naval command sat back and, and looked at uh, at operation sea lion and Preliminary work and preparations proceeded. The uh, exceptional difficulties became more and more obvious. Yeah, no kidding, boys and girls. Uh, lack of superiority at sea was supposed to be compensated for by air superiority, but it was never even possible to destroy enemy sea superiority by means of our own air superiority. The enemy's fleet and other means of defense had to be considered a decisive factor. I know. Mean, all right, this is the Navy. Um, the, the Luftwaffe would probably have come up with a slightly different uh, different assessment, but it's, it's worth noting um, the German Navy really didn't want a bar of this and didn't really think that they could seriously pull it off.
0: Phil, we joked at the beginning about giving the Royal Navy the credit for the Battle of Britain. Um, But you, and and you like cringed because you're an academic and you don't ever want to give a straight answer for anything. But now you genuinely say there is a problem in interpreting the Battle of Britain as a narrow fighter command versus the Luftwaffe, don't you?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, there is. Um, Because, as I I hope I've I've managed to suggest over the the last few minutes... There's a lot more to it than that. Um, and really, there is a danger if you, you look at the Battle of Britain simply as a, as a fighter command versus the Luftwaffe. Uh, Winston Churchill, uh, marvellously enunciating, you never own in the field of human conflict. There's so much been owned by so many.
0: Which oh, was- it was almost like grandad's in the room. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to call him that now after all that abuse on Twitter. He's just granddad now.
1: Absolutely. It is the way forward. Um, yeah. When you look at it through the perspective of, of the few as fighter command, possibly chucking in the, the control system, um, Dowding's fantastic integrated air defence system, and, you know, take absolutely nothing away from that. The ground crews, um, you know, the people making the uh, the fighters and all this sort of thing. Um, even then, you're still missing out on a hell of a lot, and there's a degree to which um, you're even kind of the if you're an RF uh, partisan, you're even doing down to a degree the the contributions of the RAF because uh, bomber command, of course, is. You know, to say, um, frequently in coordination with the navy, uh, bombing the uh, the, uh, the French ports and the, the invasion shipping there. Um, There's famous uh, raid that uh, Guy Gibson of Dan Busters fame was supposed to go on the uh, to try and destroy the dortmund Dems canal, down which uh, a lot of these sort of Rhine barges were were moving. So they, they tried to shot off the supply by bombing the canal. Um, tragic failure. Uh, and Gibson was, uh, I think most people count as fortunate to miss that. But, you know, because the, the losses were, were fairly spectacular. But, uh, yeah, the, you got Bomber Command doing this. You've got um, Coastal Command um, patrolling uh, you know, pretty much 24 hours a day. They've, they've got Maritime Patrol aircraft patrolling the channel. Uh, looking out for invasion craft, and obviously um, trying to to hit any um, small German craft that are that are interfering with British shipping, and and all this sort of thing, laying mines outside of, uh, of um, French, Dutch, and German ports to to try and prevent any uh, any um, shipping leaving, and so forth. Uh, and I mean they. They lose quite heavily. I think they lose about 150-something aircraft and, and 600, uh, 600 men. Mixed in with them, of course, are also yet more Royal Navy squadrons, the fleet air arm, um, which also do a lot of the, the mine-laying stuff. Um, and they are, of course, uh, because they're, they're capable of, of anti-shipping strikes, um, going to be one of the, the key elements in, in taking out any invasion directly or at least attempting to. So you've got those guys involved as well. Um, and there is an awful, and you know, even beyond that, um, you've got the preparations on land. I mean, uh, the the anti-invasion building um, construction preparations of all the defences and the concrete pillboxes and so forth, that you can still see remnants of around southern England. One of the biggest... Uh, construction programs ever initiated in in this country. Uh, And you've got all that uh, tied in there. Obviously, one can question how much some of that was needed, um, whether or not the invasion was serious. I mean, um, interestingly, I I would say, and it's academic caveating, it's almost impossible to tell, but you you could almost say that... uh, um, running the invasion uh, and sort of suggesting the invasion was one of the, the best things that uh, that Admiral Rader was able to do, um, in order to to try and get the most out of the the, the war in the Atlantic, because obviously you've got these seventy odd destroyers sat stuck in uh, um, sat stuck in ports. They're not out in the Atlantic protecting convoys and so forth, which is incidentally where, where um Sir Charles Forbes, the, the home fleet commander, always reckoned they should be. Uh, as I say, he always felt it was the massive naval preparations just overkill, um, and felt that the the Navy's destroyers and cruisers would be better off employed elsewhere. On the, uh, on the convoy routes in the Atlantic and you know, helping him to, to take the offensive uh, potentially up in Norway. But what the, the threat of invasion does is it ties down a huge amount of the Royal Navy, uh, whether by accident or by design. And one could argue that it leads to to one of the, the more dangerous points in the uh, the first U-boat happy time, um, and uh, where the U-boats are really sort of starting to, to sink an awful lot of, uh, of British shipping, so there's, I think we need to to look at the Battle of Britain in a in a wider wider perspective. As I said earlier, I can see why we narrow it down. I really can. I mean, it's it's a nice neat story, and I think we as historians do. I think struggle with the concept that you know this this story is told this way because it is a nice story that all fits fairly neatly together, um, even if reality is a bit messier. But you know whether whether you want to call the Battle of Britain a narrow um, fighter command versus the Luftwaffe a bit, or whether you want to, to take a, a wider wider appreciation, and I think we do all need to, uh, to pay attention to the bigger story that's, that's surrounding it uh, because it's, it is big and it is fascinating and it encompasses Britain and to an extent the empire as well.
0: Bill, thank you so much for joining us and sharing us a complete different other perspective of the Battle of Britain because we always talk about what happens from the air, but we never talk about what happens from the sea so thank you very much for that. Thanks, Alina. A boaty perspective <laughs> as well, Alina.
1: You I so survived.
0: Honest. I did, I survived. It's okay, don't worry, I'm still here. <laughs> you're such a dick. Long. No, I know, she was really well behaved, wasn't she? <laughs> I love you, you're such a knob. <laughs> Join us tomorrow when Katie Tucker will be with us to talk all about her speciality, which is osteoarchaeology. And this being me, Lena, we could not resist her particular speciality, which is decapitation. So join us because that's brilliant. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so.